Heavenly Father, your word is light into our darkness and it is comfort for our broken lives and souls. We pray, please, tonight, Lord, as we seek your wisdom from your word on how to live as your people in your world. You would give us minds to understand what you've revealed, hearts to take it in, and strength from your spirit to live it out, to your praise and your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, we have a whole host of challenging issues to touch on tonight. We're going to touch on, talk about life, death, human dignity, disability, sexuality, euthanasia, abortion and gender. Now, in the time we've got, we can't possibly deal comprehensively with any of them. And yet, they all need to be talked about because they're all intimately connected to our understanding of what it is to be a human being. So I want to acknowledge at the outset that there's a lot more that needs to be said about each of these topics and we could easily do a talk on each one, but I decided early on not to do that because even though these topics are really important, they are not the only issues that are really important in the Bible's vision of what it is to be a human. We also need to talk about family. We need to talk about community. We need to talk about engagement with the wider world because they're crucial parts of the biblical picture of what it is to be human. Even if in our individualistic Western mindset, they often seem to be less important than these other things. So I made the decision to make sure that we spend time on those other topics as well this week. So consequently, my realistic aim for this talk is fairly modest I want to establish some foundational truths from God's Word that I hope will then point us in the right direction on these matters under a broad heading of human dignity. But let's make sure, therefore, that the conversation continues in question time after tonight's session, but also with one another during the rest of the week. Now, I'm also aware that any number of these issues that we'll touch on tonight may be particularly resonant for you. Maybe you live with a disability. Maybe you've had an abortion. Maybe you're same-sex attracted. Maybe you've watched a grandparent or a parent die a slow and painful death. Or maybe it's not been you, but family or friends who've had these experiences. So if you're thinking these are theoretical issues... Let me reassure you that for most people here in the room, these are not theoretical issues. So let's make sure as we talk about these things together, that we reflect the image of Jesus towards each other. Let's speak kindly, gently, humbly, with compassion and empathy and love. We're not going to be afraid of God's truth. Because ultimately we know that God is good and he's full of love towards us. So his word, his wisdom, his way, they are for our good. But as we look at God's word together on these topics, let's make sure we do it sensitively, compassionately and always motivated by love. Now the very first thing to say is you need to remember yesterday's talk. 
We saw yesterday that Jesus has already secured the most significant truth about your identity, irrespective of any other factor. Through his own death and resurrection, Jesus has enabled your trajectory from death in Adam to glory in Jesus. And when we come to him in faith and repentance, not only does he wipe away all of our sins, but he remakes us in his own image and promises to bring that transformation process to completion in the glorious new creation when he returns. That is the deepest, most fundamental truth there is about you. If you're a Christian... You have been made and remade in Jesus for glory. That is the deepest reality about you. Now, it's important to restate that because we are not leaving that truth behind and now going on to explore other issues. No, what we're doing tonight is exploring more deeply how that foundational truth about our identity in Christ shapes these other important issues. So I'm on page 25, part A, human dignity and value. Now the first thing to note is our distressing tendency to devalue others, both individually and as a culture. Have you noticed that in our culture we so easily dismiss the young, or at least those younger than us? or we dismiss the old, or those who can't speak our language, or those who are defenceless, or less powerful, or the poor, or those with a disability, or the less intelligent, or sometimes those who are less practical, or the less beautiful, or the less productive, or the less impressive. Why do we dismiss so many people so readily? I don't know, actually. Maybe it's fear. Maybe we're threatened by their difference. Maybe it's arrogance. Maybe it's selfishness. You know, unless you can really help me get what I want, then I don't really care about you. Maybe we're just superficial. We judge each other on the externals and we don't look deeper into the real person. Whatever might be the reason for this devaluing of others, it certainly is evidence of a lack of love. We don't show empathy or compassion very easily. But Jesus, as the truest human, shows us a different way. Jesus consistently models that every single person matters. In Luke 15, 1-7, Jesus is criticised by the religious leaders for welcoming sinners. That is, those people who the religious leaders condemned and avoided. But Jesus not only speaks with them, he welcomes them and he eats with them and he spends time with them speaking about the kingdom of God. And when the religious leaders are critical of this, Jesus tells them a parable. I'm reading from Luke chapter 15, verse 4 to 7. Jesus said, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? 
And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. And then Jesus says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 religious persons who don't need to repent. You get Jesus' point, right? Every person, no matter what their situation in life, no matter what they've done in the past, no matter who they are, every single person matters to Jesus. And you can see it in the other passages. I've listed it there on page 25. In Luke 18, Jesus welcomes the little children whom Jesus' own disciples had written off. Or in Luke 7, Jesus shows his care for a woman that the religious leaders had written off. Or in John 4, Jesus shows care for an adulterous Samaritan woman. Jesus really does care for every lost sheep. But notice what his care of each of these people actually looks like. Jesus' agenda is to tell them about the kingdom of God. And at the end of the parable, Jesus talks about rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Repents. Jesus is not on a mission of universal validation where whatever you do, you can just keep on doing because it's all fine with Jesus. No, actually, he's coming proclaiming the kingdom of God and the response he calls everyone to make is repent. That is, put your old ways behind you and turn back to God. And it's the same in each of those passages I've listed there on your page. Each person matters to Jesus precisely because... Every single person needs to know the one, that the one true living God made them, loves them, and wants to see them saved by putting their faith in Jesus. Now, there's a deep foundation for this, grounded back in the Old Testament, which teaches us about the preciousness of every human life. In Genesis chapter 9, there in the middle of your page, God says to Noah and his family after they've come out of the ark, For your own lifeblood, I will surely require a reckoning. From every animal, I will require it. And from human beings, each one for the blood of another, I will require a reckoning for human life. As what he's saying is, every human life matters to me, says God. And so he's going to hold accountable whoever takes the life of a human being, whether that be another human being or an animal. God regards every human life as precious. Why? Well, have a look there in verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall that person's blood be shed, for in his own image God made humankind. The foundation for the preciousness of every human life is that we're all made in the image of God. Therefore, we can't treat the death of a human being like the death of just any other creature. This is where Peter Singer goes wrong. Human beings are not just another type of animal, not according to God who made us all and made humanity in His image. God doesn't treat the death of a human being the same way He treats the death 
of another animal. He says he requires a reckoning for the taking of a human life. Now, having established that, the question might occur to you, well, what about all the taking of human lives that actually is sanctioned in the Bible? How does that fit with this view of the preciousness of every human life? That's a really good question, but I think there's a good answer. I've written a few things in the box there at the bottom of page 25 for you to chase up later if you're actually interested in that question. But the short answer is that in all the cases mentioned there in that box, it's God who retains the right to determine who lives and who dies. Life, human life, always remains in God's hands, even if he uses a human agent. But back to our main thought. Every human being is made in God's image and is precious to him, and Jesus reflects that by his own interactions that every human person, every person matters. Now, let me just say, that is a significant, I think, observation. Because that means your life is precious to him. Each person's life here is precious to God. The lives of people from every race, whether they are young or old, irrespective of their gender, their class, their intellect, they are all made as God's image bearers, compromised, yes, by sin, but every life still precious to Him. And that applies just as much to those who are incapacitated in some way as to those who are in the prime of their life. It applies to those who have disabilities just as much as to those who seem to live without. It applies to the terminally ill. It applies to the not yet born. It applies to the terribly wicked, as well as the run of the mill sinner. Every human being, every human life is precious to God, valuable to God, and therefore it has to be valued by us. Which means... It is to be loved, supported, never written off. And that's going to take real energy and effort. That brings us to our next point, because Jesus didn't just teach that every person matters as some sort of abstract principle. He goes further by actively pouring himself out in service of all of us in a great act of humility at the cross. The top of page 26. Jesus' humility in serving all. In John 13, Jesus takes the position of the lowest of the lows and he washes his disciples' feet. He even washes the feet of Judas. One of his disciples, yes, but the person whom Jesus knew was about to betray him to death. Jesus washes his feet too. And he says that he does it to set the disciples an example of how they should humbly serve each other. Now even that significant act of humility and humble service, even that is just a glimpse into the greater act of humble service that Jesus would do when he goes to the cross and dies in our place. And Paul picks up what Jesus did there at the cross and he holds it up for all of us 
as the model for how we should humbly seek to serve each other. There on your page from Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 8, Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Now, a better translation might be, in humility, regard others as more worthy of your attention than yourself. Or some translations put it, regard others as more important than yourself or value others above yourself. That's the idea. He keeps going, verse 4. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And then Paul gives the example of Jesus. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's the supreme example of humble, selfless love. God, the eternal Son, takes on human flesh in order to die a humiliating death on a cross in order to save you and me. That's truly valuing others, wouldn't you think? It's shown in sacrificial, humble service. And see, that's a significant point to note, see, because if we as Christians say that we're called by God to, to love everyone else, then the Bible's pretty clear that genuine love will show itself. It will show itself in action. I'll leave you to chase up the two passages I've listed there, halfway down page 26 from 1 John 3 and James 2. But they both make the same point, that real love shows itself in concrete action, not just in empty words. So here's, here's the point, here's the rub, right? It's no use Christians saying, every human life matters without committing to humbly serving each human life in question. Because what we're stating is not some abstract principle, you know, the sanctity of human life. No, ours is a practical theology, a practical commitment to what we think it means to be a human being remade in the image of Jesus. Every human life is precious to God, and so we commit in love to humbly serving all these people that God has made in His image, as we are able to. Now, this is critical if we're going to encourage others to uphold the preciousness of every human life. Because the preciousness of human life is under threat from the prevalence of abortion in our society to the increasing push for legalised euthanasia in Australia. And if we want to encourage others to treat all human lives with dignity including the not yet born and the terminally ill, then we as Christians are going to have to step up and invest time and energy and money in actively supporting those 
who choose not to go down the abortion or euthanasia route. So we're going to have to create active communities of care that support parents who have kids that they might not have been expecting to have. We're going to need to support single parents without shaming them. We're going to have to invest in palliative care and pain research. And we're going to have to rearrange our lives to treat those who are dying with love and dignity and practical help. We're going to need to step up as a Christian community and provide practical support and respite for carers who are looking after those who are living with significant disabilities. See, the preciousness of human life has very practical outworkings for us as Christians if we're going to take it seriously. Now, there's a third important truth to bed down here, halfway down page 26. The heading is Jesus, Gospel and True Healing. Because if we're going to talk about human dignity, then we need to talk about suffering. Because one of the things that the world keeps saying is that there is no dignity in suffering. That's really an important statement in the euthanasia debate, but also in how we think about disability and even in how we think about unwanted pregnancies. So what does Jesus tell us about suffering? Well, it's interesting that even though Jesus was empowered by God the Father to heal every sort of sickness and illness, Jesus did not heal all the sick people who were brought to him. Not because he wasn't able, but rather because he had a different priority. His priority was on preaching about the kingdom of God. Why was that his priority? Well, the answer is because he knew that ultimately it's only in the kingdom of God that all pain and suffering, including death itself, would be ended. See, the first thing to say about suffering is that God's plan and purpose is not that we endure endless suffering. Suffering is in the world because of sin, not because God likes suffering. No, God's plan is to end the suffering for good. You see this in Luke chapter 4, 16 to 21, where Jesus reads a passage from the Old Testament from the prophet Isaiah about the coming kingdom of God. And he reads it out loud that in this kingdom there is freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind. That is, God is going to fix what is wrong in the world. He's going to fix the suffering and pain and disease and because they are not good. That's the point, really, of all the physical healings that Jesus did. And he did a lot of them. They were illustrations to his main message. Little visual pictures, like tasters, like you get when you go to the gelato bar. You know, you get a little taster. Well, when the blind man that Jesus meets gets his sight restored, that's not the end game, that's just the taster. The reality of the final healing is in the kingdom of God when Jesus returns. And Jesus' point really was, was not that, hey, God's going to get rid of suffering now. His point was, no, God's got a plan to get rid of all the pain and suffering in the coming kingdom of God, and you want to be part of that. 
which you can do through repentance and faith. So you see it in passages like Luke 4, verses 40 to 44, where Jesus deliberately walks away from one place where they were bringing lots of people to him for healing. He walks away from them. And he says the reason he walks away, the reason he's leaving, is because he'd been sent to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. The news about the kingdom of God is the main game, not the release from suffering now. When the kingdom arrives in its fullness, when Jesus returns, then, praise God, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. So yes, God is planning to end all the suffering. But no, it's not now. It's when Jesus returns and the kingdom arrives in all its glorious fullness. So what then do we make of suffering now? Even though suffering is not itself a good thing, God does promise to use the suffering to bring about good things for Christians. So in Romans 8, verses 28 to 30, Paul says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And the good for which God is working in everything, even in the midst of your suffering, the good is enabling you to become, day by day, bit by bit, more like the Lord Jesus. As Paul says in the next verse, verse 29, For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. So through our suffering... As Christians, God is at work to transform us more and more into the image of Jesus. That is, in our character, or maybe in our convictions, maybe in our passions, maybe in our priorities. He's growing us in patience and in faith and in hope in His promises. He's growing us in humility, in selflessness, in endurance. So in the light of this, what is the right sort of response we should make to suffering now? We can see there at the bottom of page 26 some of the right responses under God to present suffering. It is right to grieve. It's right to be sad about the suffering you or a loved one is facing. Because this is not how things are meant to be. Nothing is as God originally intended and sin has corrupted it all. So it's right to mourn. It's right to grieve. Look at the grieving of Job in the Old Testament or the Psalms of lament. It's right to grieve over suffering and to grieve with those who are suffering. Don't try to put some sort of happy, clappy band-aid on someone else's suffering. suffering. Suffering sucks. It's right to grieve about it. Grieve with those who grieve. And it's also right to long for things to be better. It's right to long for the suffering to be taken away and the pain to end. The Apostle Paul, who suffered a lot, said plainly, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. 
And the New Testament as a whole ends on a note of longing for Jesus to return and the suffering to end. Come, Lord Jesus, come, is what you read in Revelation 22.20. So it's right to grieve and it's right to long. And that's where hope comes in. So we have a sure promise of God that he will bring all the suffering to an end in the coming kingdom when Jesus returns. And so a right response to suffering now is to hold on to that promise, cling tightly to the sure hope that God is going to make all things new. And when you cling on to that hope, the fact that you can have such a sure hope of a future without suffering, that is the source of joy for the Christian, even in the midst of suffering now. See, we don't rejoice in the suffering itself. That actually would be a form of masochism. We rejoice in what God is going to do. We rejoice in what he's doing now in transforming me into the likeness of Jesus. Even in the midst of the suffering, we rejoice in the hope that we have of a sure future without suffering. And because we know God is at work for our good, even in the midst of this suffering, that enables us to persevere, even in the midst of it. See, if suffering was pointless, if it achieved nothing, then we may well ask, why push on? Why persevere? But see, we know God is working for our good, even in the midst of protracted and severe suffering. So it's not pointless, is it? Because as bad as it is, God is working for our good in the midst of this bad situation. And confident of that, we can persevere with the strength that he supplies. Which brings us then to prayer. See, we don't do any of this alone. And we don't do it in our own strength. Jesus promises that he's with us to the very end of the age and he's poured out his powerful spirit into our hearts so we are never alone and we never seek to persevere through suffering in our own strength. And prayer really is the expression of that truth because in prayer we come before our loving Heavenly Father and we pour out our situation to him and we ask for comfort. And we ask for power to endure. So those, I think, are some of the right responses we make as a Christian to suffering now. But behind all of them, and I should have written it there on the page, but it didn't occur to me at the time, but it occurred to me later, I missed the main response. I missed the biggie. What's the, what's the great big response that we should have as Christians in the face of suffering? It's faith, trusting in Jesus' promise. That's the key response in the face of suffering. It's faith that pushes you to pour out your situation before God in prayer. It's faith that sees you cling on to the promises in perseverance and in hope and in joy. And it's faith in Jesus and his promise that is the key response when we suffer as God's people in the world now. So how does this work itself out in practice? 
Let's try to draw together all those different things that we've been saying so far tonight. So the top of page 27, living it out, loving in the image of Jesus. First of all, loving the living. How do we go about loving those who are different to you? Well, think about what we've said. Since every human being is equally precious to God, there is absolutely no place whatsoever for racism or sexism or ageism or classism where some are judged as less valuable or less worthy of care and concern than any other. And so for Christians, I take it that means that we ought to oppose any behaviour or legislation that judges some human beings as less valuable or worthy of care than any others. We ought to oppose it wherever we see it, and we need to oppose it most strongly when we see it in ourselves. Because that is not how Jesus treated us. It's not the model he gave us to follow. What about loving the poor and the needy? Unfortunately, because we've not embraced the preciousness of every human being, there are always those around us who don't get the care and the concern they need. I'm thinking about the homeless, the dispossessed, the asylum seekers, the impoverished. Because every human being is precious to God, we're called on to love our neighbour as ourselves. But as we've seen, genuine love always shows itself in action. So it's right to ask ourselves, if we call ourselves Christians, are we loving those who are at the margins? those who have found themselves, for whatever region, reason, now suffering at the bottom of the pile, as it were. Because as Christians, we show the world a different way of being human. We show what it's like to be in Christ and not in Adam. We show God's love by the way we love those who are in need, like the Good Samaritan in Jesus' parable. So are we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, stepping up and taking that calling seriously? And just to be clear here, it's not a matter of prioritising the physical over the spiritual, but nor is it a matter of prioritising the spiritual over the physical. Rather, I take it, because we love people who are holistic unities, both physical and spiritual, we want to see them know the love of God that He has for them and we want to see them come to love God in return and our extension of practical love to them is part of helping them understand God's love for them in Christ which then we share with them as well with our lips. What about loving those living with a disability? Well, every human life is precious to God, irrespective of whatever disabilities we may be carrying. We are all equally created in God's image, no matter what our individual capabilities and capacities, no matter what they may or may not be. There's no second-class citizens in Jesus' kingdom. But it is the responsibility of all of us to ensure that those who are carrying disabilities don't end up feeling like they are second-class citizens in God's kingdom. 
They are precious to God, and so they must be precious to us. And that loving care and concern for them must show in action, because that's what genuine love does. So that will mean ensuring that people are included and cared for in the Christian community. That those also who have particular roles as carers are supported and given respite who are, and are helped emotionally and financially and practically. As God's people together in Christ, we must band together to care for everyone in the community and leave none on the edges. What about loving the dying? The voluntary euthanasia debate is growing in Australia and some are suggesting it's now only a matter of time before we follow some European countries and several states in America and legalise some form of voluntary euthanasia. Now, there are lots of things we could say about this topic, but from what we've already looked at tonight, a couple of things stand out. First is how we think about suffering. In some of the pro-euthanasia talk, dignity and suffering are seen as mutually exclusive. There's no dignity in suffering, we're told, and extreme suffering removes your dignity as a human being. And so that position holds that is what legitimizes prematurely ending your life because you have lost dignity. I just don't think that fits with the Bible's picture of suffering, the Bible's view about suffering as I've tried to explain it to you. Suffering we know is not a good thing in itself and that's why God plans to remove it in the coming kingdom. But in the meantime, while we wait for Jesus' return... We know God is working for our good in conforming us more and more to the likeness of Jesus, even in the midst of extreme suffering. But the second thing to say is that it's never our place, according to the Bible, to just decide to take human life. The giving and taking of human lives, very clearly in the Bible, is in God's hands. So we entrust ourselves to God in the midst of suffering, though out of love, we ought to seek to minimize the suffering of others through palliative care and thoughtful pain medication. Well, what about loving the not yet born? Well, to my mind, once conception has occurred, it's very difficult to draw a line in the development from fertilised egg to embryo to fetus to full-term baby still in the womb. At what point do you decide along that growth that this living thing yesterday was not a human being but now today is a human being? Where do you draw the line? And Non-Christian ethicists as well say it's just not really possible to draw a clear line there. How ought we treat the not yet a human being but potentially a human being thing growing inside somebody? Well, the key biblical principle, I think, is that all human life is in God's hands. He's the one who grants life and he decides to take it, not us. And when it comes to the not yet born, the potential human being growing in the womb I feel like a clear line delineating 
now this is a human life. That, that's very hard to establish. So I think wisdom would leave the potential human life in God's hands rather than take its life into our own. Abortion does not seem to be the way to go to respect the preciousness of human life in God's sight. But as I mentioned earlier, we can't hold this view without simultaneously working really hard to support those who find themselves unexpectedly carrying a child. As a Christian community, we need to support families, single mums, young couples that find themselves pregnant, decide to get married and raise the child. They need support. That's going to take time. That's going to take energy and money. We're going to need to open our homes to other people, have them live with us. We're going to have to help people past whatever shame they may be feeling. We're going to have to open up further opportunities for them down the track because their life has now taken a really unexpected turn. Genuine love is going to show itself in genuine action. And may I say, and this is really important, if you've had an abortion, which in a group this size is not unexpected, please don't think that somehow that's the end for you. I know the pain and difficulty of what you've gone through may well stay with you. I know that. But also know this, that with God in Jesus, there is forgiveness for every single one of our failings. When we come to Jesus in repentance and faith, he wipes that slate clean. He keeps no record of our wrongs. Hope for all of us is never lost because in Jesus we have abundant, gracious forgiveness for all of our sins, even for decisions that you may have taken that took another's life. There is forgiveness for all of our sins. There's no stain when you come to Jesus in faith. Whatever you've done, when you come to him, you become clean, pure, blameless because of his death for you. Well, that's a pretty heavy first half of a talk. So what we're going to do now is we're going to stand and sing of God's goodness to us. And then we're going to look at what our new identity in Christ has to say about sexuality and gender. We're on page 28 as we turn to look at the topic of sexuality and gender. Now, I don't really need to tell you that this is an issue receiving significant attention. Same-sex marriage, safe schools program, gendered bathrooms, the Orlando mass shooting just a while ago in a gay nightclub, wear it purple days in state schools, protests actually on our own campus at Sydney Uni last semester when the Catholic group invited a self-described ex-gay to speak on campus. Gender and sexuality issues are absolutely mainstream, but also they're issues that are deeply personal. Our sense of ourselves is, for most of us, inextricably tied up with some notion of gender or sexuality. It's a key part of our identity, which means, as in the first half of tonight's talk, 
We need to tread carefully as we talk about this topic openly and honestly with each other. We're going to need to be thoughtful and gentle and respectful in our interactions. Now remember the words of Paul to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1 where he said, knowledge puffs up but love builds up. It's useless to just speak truth, even God's truth, loudly without any love. As Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Love is absolutely essential when it comes to speaking on this or any other topic. And love will show itself in the way we speak, with empathy, genuine concern, compassion and gentleness. And that's going to be particularly important as we speak together about sexuality and gender issues because evidence tells us that those who identify as part of the broad LGBTIQ community are often at significantly greater risk of mental health issues, even of suicide. So let's make sure that we always speak kindly and thoughtfully and compassionately. But also... This is a topic on which God speaks through the Bible, rightly understood. And given the significant attention that this topic is receiving at the moment and the strong reaction against the traditional Christian position in many quarters, it is actually a seriously attractive option to not say anything at all on this topic. But the reality is that we believe the one true living God has spoken on this issue through His Word in the Christian Scriptures And so we humbly seek to understand what he has revealed to us in the Bible so that we might know and live by his truth. As the first line of the EU doctrinal basis puts it, the Sydney Uni Evangelical Union upholds the fundamental truths of Christianity, including, one, the divine inspiration and infallibility of Holy Scripture as originally given and its supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. That final phrase phrase is important. Its supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct, including here when it comes to understanding sexuality and gender. So we uphold our commitment to love, and we also uphold our commitment to God's truth. And these two are not in ultimate contradiction. Because even though God's truth might be difficult for me to hear, to have God's truth kept from me ultimately is not loving to me either. The key, it seems to me, when we're talking about matters that people find genuinely hard to hear, is that we speak with as much clarity and as much sensitivity as we can. So that people are given the whole picture and not merely just isolated bits of the truth. And we do so with genuine empathy, so that people are lavished, in fact, with the support they need to trust God in a difficult area. And as I've been thinking about this topic and how to speak about it, that's what I think love demands of me as a Christian teacher at this point. Clarity with God's truth and all sensitivity in how I communicate it. Mind you, I am aware that even being as sensitive as I can in this area 
the very act of even speaking clearly about what God's Word teaches about sexuality and gender will mean that some will say, well, you've just not been sensitive, just by speaking aloud about it. To state what the Bible says in this area in any way is judged by some as hurtful. In one Facebook interaction I was following recently, someone wrote this comment. Yes, everyone has a right to their own opinion. I am simply asking conservative Christians to accept that sharing these opinions is hurtful. Everyone has a right to their own opinion, but I am asking conservative Christians to accept that sharing these opinions is hurtful. Now, I have, sorry, is harmful was the word, is harmful. I have no desire to cause anyone harm. I know that sharing what God has revealed in His Word might cause people concern, even discomfort, but I have no desire to harm anyone because that's not God's desire. He doesn't want to cause anyone harm through knowledge of the truth. God's truth is meant to bring us to a knowledge of God's love for us pointed by pointing us to Jesus and showing the way of salvation and what it means to live for Him. God's truth is not meant to bring us harm, even if we do find it uncomfortable or disconcerting. So I do feel constrained tonight. My task as a Christian teacher is to humbly, clearly and sensitively seek to show you what God's Word rightly understood teaches on this matter but I know that holding up what I believe God to be teaching us in this area will potentially open me up to charges of insensitivity, maybe a lack of love, even maybe hatred and bigotry and harm just by sharing it with you. That's just where we're at these days. So all I can do, I think, is to speak humbly and clearly, sensitively, in genuine compassion and a commitment to personally love people and pray that God actually might mercifully draw people to the Lord Jesus in faith because it's only with the eyes and ears of faith that the Christian teaching in this area of gender and sexuality makes any sense. So if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you're still checking it out, then let me try to invite you to understand God's picture of life in this area from the inside. Because some of the things God says about sex in the Bible do seem strange in contemporary secular ears. But then we shouldn't expect that it would make sense if we don't accept the initial premises on which it is built. Like that God exists, that He created us, that He is good and loving, that He wants what's best for us, that He's revealed His truth in the Bible. If I deny any of those, then the final picture isn't going to make any sense. So I'd invite you to try to understand the picture presented in the Bible about life in this area of gender and sexuality on its own terms, just to understand it better. And then see if it stacks up with your own experience and the experience of others. Because God's truth, if it is true will stand up to all the hard questions we can ask of it. But we need to make sure we understand it properly to begin with. So, page 28, just to clarify some terminology that's probably going to come up tonight, 
When I say sex or biological sex, here I'm talking about biology, the physical attributes of chromosomes, XX for female, XY for male. I'm talking about hormones, gonads, that is testes for male, ovaries for female, and genitalia. The question here is really, what is female, what is male? I'm going to add another term here to the list, um, sexual orientation. Sexual orientation refers to whether a person is sexually attracted to those of the same sex or of the opposite sex to themselves. Or maybe they're attracted to both or maybe to neither. Gender. Gender refers to the social roles and behaviours that a given society considers appropriate for males and females. So it's about cultural norms of behaviour and expectation. So the question here really is, what is feminine and what is masculine? Gender identity. Gender identity is how you experience yourself in terms of gender. Do you experience yourself as a woman, as a man, as neither or as both? It's the question, who am I? Gender diversity refers to the extent to which a person's gender identity or gender expression differs from the cultural norms prescribed for people of a particular biological sex. Gender fluidity, this is the view that gender is totally self-determined. You can choose whatever gender you like or no gender at all or change it from day to day because gender, in this view, is entirely self-constructed. I'm going to add another term in here, transgender. Transgender refers to people whose gender does not match their assigned biological sex. So they may have been born a biological male, but they identify as a woman, or born a biological female, but identify as a man. Gender dysphoria, well, this is the situation where a person experiences distress or discomfort because there's a discrepancy between their gender identity and their assigned biological sex at birth. So not all transgender people experience distress or discomfort. So not all transgender people experience gender dysphoria. Some key questions that we're going to need to think about. In the Bible, what's the connection between sex, biological sex and gender? Does the Bible set up norms for gender expression? What light does the Bible shine on sexual orientation and sexual practice? And then most importantly, how do we love each and every person in light of these truths? So let's trace through this topic of sexuality and gender using our framework that we've been using this week, creation, sin, Israel, Jesus, glorious new creation. Start with creation. And again, we see that the topic has a foundation in the image of God. Genesis 1, so God created man in his own image, that's the collective noun, so you could say humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the first thing to notice is male and female alike are created in the image of God. There's no difference between the sexes when it comes to our imageness. Both females and males are God's image bearers in the world. Now, that foundational truth is picked up and fulfilled in Jesus. 
it doesn't matter what biological sex you are, if you are in Jesus by faith, then you are His and a recipient of all of His promises. As Paul put it in Galatians 3, in the passage you looked at this morning in faculty time, there is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul's not saying we're all asexual in Jesus, that somehow all the sexual distinctions have disappeared, because that doesn't fit with what he goes on to say elsewhere, as we'll see later. What he's saying here is that when it comes to full participation within God's people, it's now irrelevant whether you come from a Jewish or a Gentile background, whether you're slave or free, or whether you're male or female. All of us are one in Christ Jesus. There's a radical equality in Jesus for all of us. And yet, at the top of the next page, page 29, despite this radical equality, the Bible still makes a deliberate distinction between male and female. They're named as male and female there in Genesis 1, two distinct types of human being. And the distinction between them is then developed in Genesis 2, where it moves from male and female, which seems to be about biological sex, to man and woman, or husband and wife. So, reading from Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for the man, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. In this account, the woman is formed from the side or the rib of the man as a suitable helper. Now, helper is not a subservient role in the Bible. God is described himself several times in the Old Testament as the helper of Israel. A helper is someone who works alongside the man, in this case, providing the help without which he can't do what God had asked him to do. That's why it's not good for the man to be alone, not because he's lonely, but because he can't fulfill the task God's given him to do, namely, fill the earth and subdue it. He needs someone to provide the help that he needs to do that. And the word suitable means something like, like but opposite to. He needs a like but opposite to helper for him to fulfill the task he's give, that God's given him. And the woman made out of the man's side fits that bill. She's similar but opposite to him. They're complementary to each other, not substitutes for each other. Now, that complementarity between male and female, between the man and the woman, is seen then in marriage where the two are rejoined as one flesh, as the writer notes in verse 24. 
that rejoining is not referring merely to a physical act of sexual intercourse, it's about a covenantal rejoining, a becoming one family distinct from the families in which you grew up. It's a relational one flesh as well as a sexual one. And that new relational covenantal sexual one flesh unity is the means that God provides for being fruitful and multiplying, fulfilling the earth and subduing it. Point C, the created distinctions then between the male man and the female woman, those created distinctions are maintained throughout the Scriptures, both in the Old and New Testament. Got some passages listed there on your page, you can look them up, I'll tell you what's in them. In Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 5, God tells the Israelites that women shouldn't wear men's clothing and men shouldn't wear women's clothing. The point seems to be that the Israelites are to uphold the original creation distinction between the sexes and are not to seek to de-align the gender from the biological sex. And Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 to 5, there's a distinction made for the period of uncleanness after a woman gives birth, depending on whether she's given birth to a boy or a girl. It's not about the relative value of girls and boys. I think it's a reflection of Genesis 2 account that Adam was created first and then Eve. The law in Leviticus is upholding the distinction between the sexes established back at creation. You move forward into the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 11, we see that same creation distinction between men and women appearing again. Now, it's a tricky passage, partly because Paul is addressing some issues of cultural gender expression with which we're not so familiar. It's all about, for them, whether it's culturally appropriate for a man or a woman to pray or prophesy in church with their head covered or uncovered. Now, that's frankly not an issue that makes a lot of sense to us, but that's because we don't express our cultural respect for our wife or our husband by what you wear on your head. But they did. I think what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 11 is he's pulling up the Corinthian Christians for not respecting the gender expectations of the wider Corinthian culture and that they were bringing dishonour on each other and ultimately on Jesus by flouting gender expressions in such a flagrant way. Moving on to Ephesians 5, this is basically a, this is basically a list of every tricky passage in the Bible, right? But that's okay. Not quite everyone, but a few of them. Ephesians 5, in this passage, Paul has specific instructions for husbands and wives in how they're to love each other. And whilst they're both called to submit to the other person, the way this looks for husbands and wives takes different shapes. In particular, in this passage, Ephesians 5, the way husbands and wives are to love each other is patterned on the way Jesus and the church love each other. The husband is to sacrificially put his wife first ahead of himself, and the wife is to respect and submit to her husband. 
Now, we might get a chance to talk later in the week about what that looks like, but I guess just my point here is there's just another clear distinction being made here that what it looks like for husbands and wives is different. There's a difference being made on the two sexes or genders. And then when you get to 1 Timothy 2 and 3, again, there are descriptions of what constitutes appropriate behavior for men and for women. But it also talks about women and men together in the church context. And it's in that passage we read Paul's controversial statement in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. And then he goes on immediately to tie this to Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. Now, there's considerable debate amongst evangelicals, both about what Paul's talking about here and how we should apply it today. And I can't cover all of that now, except that to say, for what it's worth, I think, and this is just my particular understanding of that text, I think he's talking about a particular role of church eldership, partly because that's what he goes on to talk about in the next few verses, the beginning of chapter 3. But you can ask me about that at some other time if you like. And I want to acknowledge that there are many fellow evangelicals who would disagree with what I just said. Um, And so because amongst our evangelical family, we have significant disagreement on how to understand that verse, I'm I'm not going to hold it as a core issue. But the broad point here is, again, we see creation distinctions between male and female, men and women, being upheld and applied. We've seen it in marriage. We've seen it in church practice. So, some initial conclusions then about gender and sex just from the creation accounts. In God's original intention, there are two sexes according to Genesis. There's male and female, and these align with the man-woman genders. All females are women, and all women are females, and likewise for males and men. Second point, although the cultural expression of what's masculine and what's feminine changes over time and from culture to culture, the Bible upholds that there is a difference between men and women And the Bible expects God's people to respect that difference, particularly in marriage and in church leadership and in making sure that we don't unnecessarily subvert cultural expressions of our gender in such a way as to bring disrepute to God in the eyes of others and of our culture. We uphold the distinction between the genders, however these might be culturally expressed, unless they are in conflict with God's Word. So we're going to resist the abolition of gender distinctions and say that actually that abolition is denying the good created order of God who created us, male and female, in His image. Okay, so turn over the page, page 30. What effect does sin have on all of this? The Bible teaches us that sin affects us in two distinct ways. And we need to be really careful tonight to distinguish between these two since the way we respond to them necessarily differs. First of all, a consequence of sin being in the world is that we all live with misordered 
aspects of our createdness. I've invented a word, I know, misordered. By misorder, I mean no longer ordered or aligned as God originally would have it intended. Paul makes clear in Romans 8, 20-22 that all of creation has been corrupted by sin. He says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labour pains until now. All of creation, including ourselves, is in bondage to decay. Not one of us is as God originally intended us to be. And that misorderedness, introduced by sin, takes all sorts of forms and shapes in my life. Now, I'm not talking about here deliberate actions or choices I make to go against God's Word. We'll come and talk about that later. When I say misorderedness, I'm talking about aspects of my life over which I genuinely have no control, but which have been pulled out of shape by sin, sin in the world, in the creation. It could be some misordering in my physical makeup. It could be in my sexual orientation. It could be in my gender identity. See, many things in life, with God's help, I can have control over in my life. With God's help, I can control who I go to bed with. I can control what sort of thoughts I deliberately entertain in my head. But I can't necessarily control what biological sex I'm attracted to, or whether in myself I feel as a man or a woman. And the misordering effects of sin can have an impact in those areas of my life, just as it can in lots of other parts of my being. Now, I'm trying to represent this in a diagram there on page 30, but you're going to need to add in some a few bits of the diagram which you're going to see on the screen. First, we have here the situation we saw in Genesis 1 and 2 which we could label God's original good intention. And as we saw in the creation account, here, biological sex and gender are fully aligned. Males are men and females are women and vice versa. And in terms of sexual orientation or sexual attraction, the picture in Genesis 1 and 2 is that sexual orientation is heterosexual, male-female. And that's tied up with the creation of woman as a suitable helper to help the man fulfill God's fill the earth. So that's the neat, simple picture we get from Genesis 1 and 2. But the post-sin reality as described by the Bible, is more like this. 
the misordering effects of sin mean that the neat categories and arrows of Genesis 1 and 2 break down. Sometimes, because of the misorderness of sin, our biology doesn't line up neatly with the traditional male-female categories. People are born with atypical genitalia or different chromosome makeup or unusual hormone production levels. The term used for this is intersex. How prevalent is this? Well, depending on what you include as an intersex phenomena, estimates range between one out of every 200 to one out of every 2,000 of the population. And in case you're wondering, I'm drawing these statistics from a Beyond Blue 2013 report on LGBTI people and mental health. But there's also been a misordering of gender identity. Whereas most males still identify as men and most females as women, there are those whose internal gender identity does not align with their biological sex. They may be biologically female but feel like a man or they may be biologically male but feel like a woman. Now, estimates range between one out of every 500 to one out of every 11,500 of the population. Uh, if you want to know, most intersex people identify usually as either a man or a woman, most or all of the time. What about when it comes to sexual orientation? Well, an Australian study in 2014 found that 96% of women and 97% of men identified as heterosexual, but just under 1 in 10 men and 1 in 5 women had some history of same-sex attraction or same-sex experience. So when we look at the total picture, what we see here is the misordering effects of sin on each one of us. None of us in this room are the person God originally intended us to be because we've all been ravaged by the effects of sin. And for some of us, that has resulted in a misordering in the sex and gender area, but all of us have been ravaged by sin in numerous ways. Now, of course, there are many people in the current gender conversation who would say this biblical picture of the current reality is all wrong. Some would like to redraw the diagram and they'd draw it more like this. They would say biological sex is just a spectrum. You might have the majority up one end or the other, what's been traditionally labelled as male or female, but really it's just a constant stream of variation, large or small. And because it's just a spectrum, biological sex, so they say, is largely irrelevant. It's just a classification of your genes and genitals. It means nothing. When it comes to gender, this view would like to draw a hard barrier between sex and gender. The belief is that they have no innate connection to each other. Sexuality is purely biology and gender is entirely up to you. It's self-constructed. So when it comes to gender, because it's just a cultural construct, 
there is no objective category in which we have to work. There is total gender fluidity. You can be any gender you like. Whatever you like, whenever you like, you can make your own gender or be none at all. That's our current culture's gender framework. But that's not the picture the Bible paints of our present experience. The Bible paints this picture where sin has had its misordering effects on each one of us so that what was God's original intention has broken down into this picture which we presently experience. So the question then for each of us is this, as followers of Jesus, how do we go about living with our misordered createdness? So the top of the next page, page 31. Here's some vital truths to remember personally. The sort of situations we've been talking about where aspects of our sexuality have been misordered are situations beyond our own control. They are not situations of our own making. And so you are not personally responsible before God for the situation in which you find yourself. As I said before, there are many things in life which are in our control and for which we're responsible before God. But whether my biology doesn't fit the standard male-female category or whether I'm attracted to people of the same sex as myself, or whether my internal gender identity doesn't align with my biological sex, those are not things that are in my control, and so God does not hold us accountable for them. It's true that they're not as God originally intended things to be, but I'm not personally responsible for the types of misorderedness I experience as my person over which I have no control. Second truth to remember personally is this. God is loving. We saw last night, you are more deeply loved by God than you know. Look at the cross. That's how much God loves you in Christ. And that He loves you and has recreated you in Christ through faith to be His image bearer that is the most important and fundamental thing about you. Third, God is good. We saw earlier tonight in Romans 8, God promises to work in every situation for your good if you're a follower of Jesus, even in the most difficult of circumstances. God really is good and He's using this situation with all of its complexities, its challenges and, and often its sadnesses to grow you more and more into the likeness of the Lord Jesus. He will bring good out of this. Fourth, God is powerful and faithful. God promises to strengthen you by His Holy Spirit so you can endure in faith and obedience to Him. And He is faithful. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but will always provide a way out from under that temptation. And He'll do that through His Word, with the strength of His Spirit, and the encouragement of His people. And a final point to remember, Jesus is returning. If you've entrusted yourself to Jesus in faith, then His promise to you is to raise you to new physical life when He returns. You'll be raised, healed, 
restored, complete in every way, in beautiful resurrection glory. That's the promise He makes to you. That's the promise to which in His strength we must all cling. But there's also some vital truths to remember together. Remember the compassion of Jesus in the Gospels towards those living with the misorderedness of their createdness. As those who've been remade in the image of God, we're called to reflect His compassion and love to those living with misorderedness in their sexuality and gender. It is just way too easy to be judgmental, to be exclusionary, to be lacking in empathy when we talk about this topic. And Christians, tragically, have done that repeatedly. Remember, same-sex attraction, intersex biology, gender dysphoria, these are not things over which people have control. You should be filled with compassion and love, not fear and condemnation. The Christian community must be a safe place for people to be honest about their personal challenges in following Jesus. But it's only a safe place if we're committed together to the love that builds up, not just sprouting off the Bible knowledge that puffs up. And in particular, our sisters and brothers in these situations, they need your support. And I mean they really need it. In fact, you owe it to them. Paul says in Romans 13 verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other. And genuine love, as we've said tonight, shows itself always in action. For our sisters and brothers to stay faithful to the Lord Jesus in these situations, they will need our support and encouragement and friendship and love. And look, I say that to you with a real sense of my own failings in this very area. I know that I've failed to be the faithful support I should have for some of my brothers and sisters in Christ who are in this situation. And I regret that. But actually, repentance is what really counts, not regret. Changed behaviour because you're committing to doing what is right. And it's never too late for repentance. So let's be the loving, compassionate, supportive, God-honouring community of image-bearers that our sisters and brothers in Christ need us to be. Now, I said earlier that sin affects us in two distinct ways. The first was the misorderedness with which we all live because the whole creation has been affected by sin. The second way sin affects us is different. There on page 31, it's the willful rejection of God's plans. And this is where, although we know God's stated way of how to live best in His world, we know what He wants us to do, we deliberately reject it and choose to do things our own way. This is willful and deliberate sin that we choose to do. Now, we all do this. We do it all the time. We do it in decision-making. We do it in our relationships. We do it in the way we treat God's world around us. And we also do it in the area of sex, gender, and sexual relationships. 
Now, I've listed a couple of different sort of relationships there in your page. We don't have time to go through it all. The first relationship I've listed there is maybe the most common for sin in this area. It's between husbands and wives. And it's a real shame that we don't have time to go through that material on husbands and wives in more detail because there is so much pain caused in marriage. And it's terribly highlighted at the moment by the helpful exposure of the amount of domestic violence going on in Australia. And God clearly identifies in the Bible that this destructive tension between husbands and wives is because we've rejected His way of relating and we've pursued our own sin-filled path. That is not what God wants for any marriage. And it's a result of our deliberate sin. And as you read through that material in your own time, you'll see that God sets up instructions for husbands and wives to limit sin within that relationship. Jesus points to divorce as evidence of our hard hearts in the marriage relationship. And because of sin, God has to repeatedly throughout the Bible encourage and remind husbands and wives to be sexually faithful to each other and not to wander off into destructive sex in adultery. So I'm going to leave you to read that material. Can you turn over to page 32? The second area where we deliberately reject God's plan for sex and gender is when we form sexual relationships outside of the male-female marriage. As we've already seen when we looked at creation, God's good intention for sex, revealed there in Genesis 1 and 2, is that sexual expression and activity is created by God for male-female lifelong exclusive marriage. Now, you might say, well, hang on, how do you know the story about Adam and Eve is actually about marriage? Well, the answer is when you read Genesis chapter 2 and look at the last verse, verse 24, the author then says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That is the author's saying an explicit point that the experience of Adam and Eve there in the garden sets up the paradigm for marriage, which is a forming of a new family so children can be born and humanity can fulfill its task to be fruitful and multiply. So sexual intercourse, as created by God and described in Genesis 1 and 2, finds its good intended home in the male-female lifelong exclusive marriage. And that that's God's good intention for sexual relationships is reinforced as you move through the rest of the Bible. It's given a particular shape by the Old Testament law. You can look up later, Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, which lists a whole lot of prohibited sexual relationships. So if you like, Genesis 1 and 2 gives the positive place of sex within male-female marriage. Leviticus 18 and 20 explicitly articulate the sort of relationships that fall outside of that right proper place for sex. So it prohibits sex with close relatives, that is incest. It prohibits sex with people who are married to other people, adultery. It prohibits same-sex sex. So homosexual sex, either men with men or women with women. It even goes to the trouble of mentioning bestiality, sex with animals is prohibited as well. It's not a complete list, 
presumably sex with dead people or sex with minors falls outside of God's positive plan for sex as articulated in Genesis 1 and 2 as well. But it confirms the plan and place that God has for sexual relationships for our good. And since those prohibitions are grounded in creation, it's not surprising to see them upheld under the new covenant in Christ. So in 1 Corinthians 6, there on your page we read, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The same expectation, see, that God's people would uphold His good intentions for sexual relationships, they're maintained across from the Old Testament into the New Testament for those who are in Christ Jesus. But notice this, this is not an expectation placed on those who are outside of Christ. He says there in verse 11, this is what some of you were. But now you've been washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That is, you used to live like this, but not anymore. That's not what life looks like now in Christ, within Jesus' kingdom. Moreover, God has washed you clean from all of those past sins through Jesus and and by His Spirit. So you don't go back to them. They have no place within God's plans and purposes within the kingdom. And the same message is there in the next two passages there on your page from 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Thessalonians 4. God is absolutely clear that there is no place for sexual immorality amongst those who follow Jesus. That phrase, sexual immorality, is used in our Bibles as a translation of a Greek word, porneia, from which we get the word pornography, but the word porneia is a general word used in the New Testament to cover all sorts of sexual activity outside of God's revealed intention for sex, namely male-female lifelong marriage. Now, this passage here from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 to 20, is very instructive because, in part, Paul is addressing the argument, hey, look, I've got a sexual body. God's given me a sexual body. Surely that's meant for sexual pleasure. So if I go ahead and enjoy myself sexually, aren't I just doing what my body's designed to do? And that's actually an argument that we hear quite a lot today. What does it matter how I use my body? Well, listen to God's response here through the apostles, starting there at verse 13. He starts by quoting a line of their argument. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And then he comments, and God will destroy both one and the other. That is, he's saying your argument from design is not good enough. You're not looking high enough. You're not taking the whole picture. You need to take God into account. He's the one who will hold us to account for how we use this body that he's given us. And then he goes on. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, 
but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So the real, the real purpose of your physical body is not for pleasure or sex. Just think about that for a moment. The real, God's intended purpose for your body is not actually for sex. Your body is meant for the Lord Jesus. Remember, he's speaking to the Christian church here, to those who've committed themselves to Jesus in faith and are now in Christ. And so now they live not for themselves, they live for the Lord Jesus in every aspect of life. And it's not just that our bodies are for the Lord Jesus, but apparently He is for our bodies. What does that mean? Well, He explains it in the next verse, verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. God has a plan for your body, your present body, to raise it to new resurrection glory, like He raised the Lord Jesus. And the fact that we have that promised future changes how we think now about our bodies. We're already in Christ now, even though that future hasn't arrived, but that shapes what we do with our bodies now. Verse 15 then, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Paul's making the point that what you do with your body has real meaning and significance. Sex is never just sex. Despite what we tell ourselves and the world insists on telling us. Sex has a tremendous unifying effect in the incredible way that God has made it. The sexologists tell us that the chemicals released during sex act to bind you emotionally, psychologically, to the other person that you're having sex with. You feel closer to them as a result, which is why... When that relationship ends and you go and sleep with someone else, and then that relationship ends and you go and sleep with someone else, the only way we can survive emotionally by that binding and then tearing apart and binding, and the only way we can survive emotionally is actually by teaching ourselves to distance ourselves emotionally from the sex act itself, to protect ourselves. Otherwise, we just end up too hurt. That's not how God intended sex to be. And because together as Christians, we're already one with the Lord Jesus, to go around using our bodies in that sort of way, in ways He has not intended, it brings us real spiritual and emotional harm, and it does not bring Him any honour. And so Paul continues then in verse 18, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, 
whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. There's the key for us as Christians. It's about our identity. We're not our own. We've been brought, bought by God with a price, namely the death of his own son. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to him who died for us and was raised again to life for us. And he's put his Holy Spirit inside us, taken up residence within us to be his dwelling place. How then can we go on in any sort of sexual immorality or any other sin in light of these facts? So glorify God in your body. And as you can read on, it's not just about what you do physically with your body. Sexual holiness for Christians includes what we do with our minds as well. And you can read Matthew 5 there on the next page where Jesus talks about it's not just about those who commit adultery or other sorts of sexual immorality. It's what goes on in your mind in terms of lust as well. A final example of how we can sometimes willingly reject God's plans is point three, when we deliberately choose, and I mean deliberately choose, to de-align our gender from our biological sex. Now, this is different from gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is where my internal gender identity doesn't line up with my biological birth sex, and that causes me some distress. I'm not talking about that, and nor am I talking about those in general who experience a lack of alignment maybe even without distress. Rather, I'm talking about here about experimenting with gender expression just for the sake of it. Not because of internal gender identity, but just, just for the heck of it, really. Or maybe to subvert cultural norms, to show how free we think we really are. But the Bible's pretty clear, as we saw earlier tonight, across the Scriptures, God upholds gender distinctives based on biological sex. We're to uphold the created gender distinctions and give them appropriate expression within our culture guided by God's Word. And we're not to try to subvert or overthrow or ignore those gender distinctions in our life together as God's people in Christ. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. I think it's appropriate to finish by talking about Jesus. Now, I've actually already mentioned all the points that are on your page on the way through. So really, this is just a reminder as we end. First of all, we end tonight where we began. Remember that as Christians, our ultimate identity is in Jesus, not in our sexuality. It's true that our gender and sexuality is deep and personal and important. That's true but it is not ultimate. The most fundamental and truest thing about you, if you're a Christian, is that you are in Jesus. With all of your weaknesses, your misorderings, your struggles, your complexities, if you are in Jesus by grace through faith, then behold, the new has come in you. You are a new creation in Christ, and by His Spirit. God has taken up residence in your life by His Spirit, and He's in the business of transforming you to greater and greater glory in the likeness of Jesus. That's the most fundamental truth about you. Second, over the page, to page 34, 
remember that with God in Christ, there is forgiveness and cleansing for all of our sins. When we come to Jesus, we bring with us all those sins that we've done, no matter how long. Every regrettable act, every lustful thought, everything we know that doesn't fit his good plan and purpose, we bring it all to Jesus at the cross. And you know what he does? With love in his eyes, he takes our sins from us and he binds them to his own back and he mounts that cross and he takes our place bearing the full weight of God's just condemnation on our sin. That's what he does. And so you stand there, I stand there, forgiven, cleansed, clean, new. I encourage you to read through the passages I've laid out there for you on page 34. Notice, take in, drink deeply from all the different ways that God describes what he does to our sin. He wipes them away like a mist. He washes us clean as snow. He treads our sin underfoot. He hurls them into the depths of the sea. He hides them behind his back. And if you ever doubt that God could really forgive you in Christ, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 that the reason God showed him, Paul, mercy as a great persecutor of the church was to serve as an example for the rest of us of how immensely patient and merciful he is to all who would put their trust in Jesus. And finally, if you think living God's way is beyond you in this area in Christ, remember that God provides everything necessary for us to live for him in holiness. God is good and kind. He never asks us to do anything that he doesn't equip us to do. And the three chief things he's given us to help us live for him are his word, his Holy Spirit within us, and the encouragement of his people. And as we seek to live our life in Christ, especially in this complex area we've talked about tonight, cling on to God's word to guide you. Know his spirit is powerfully at work within you, even in the midst of your weakness. And please, in this area particularly, Seek the encouragement and support and comfort of his people around you. And remember, as I said earlier, all of our life is under his loving sovereignty. He promises never to let you be tested beyond what you can bear. But always he will provide a way out so you can endure through that testing. Well, I'd love to go on to talk about the glorious new creation and the light that sheds on our sexuality, particularly actually how it reshapes our understanding of singleness and celibacy, giving it a dignity and a significance that our world doesn't understand. I'm going to keep that for tomorrow. I think we now need to call it a night. Wouldn't you agree? So we're going to have some friends lead us in prayer. We're going to sing one song and then we rest.